Welcome to Unframed, a podcast which hosts talks and conversations about South African art and artists. I am your host, Anthea Pakroy. This episode is from a talk that I recorded at this year's Investor Cape Town Art Fair as part of their talks program curated by Tumelo Mosaka. Thanks so much to the organizers of the fair for allowing me to record this session and to publish it on the Unframed platform. If you're interested, you can read the biographies of the panelists on the website, unframedpodcast.com. Enjoy this talk entitled The Quest for Sustainable Art Platforms. Good afternoon, everyone, and um, thank you for your attention and for joining us. I'm the moderator for this panel on... Um, yeah. Um, for this panel on the quest for sustainable art platforms and it's actually a bit of a hard act to follow for anyone who was part of the, was here for the last panel where the provocation from Koyo uh, where she said that um, art institutions can never be sustainable and uh, here we are on the quest <laughs> for sustainable art platforms and we're not even at the scale of uh, museums and other such um, prominent spaces. So I'll give a brief um, name to the face so that you're all aware who's here with us and then each uh, person on the panel will give a brief introduction about their projects and then I wanted to have a more kind of um, involved conversation so we don't keep the questions for the end but we can all have a kind of a, um, you're welcome to intervene in our conversation if you have any questions. So we also don't want to just be talking at you, but talking together with you. Um, okay. So directly next to me, we have um, Primesh Laulu. Primesh is the director or former director, <laughs> liberated director at the uh, University of the Western Cape um, Center for Historical, no, Center for Humanities Research. And uh, he's going to be speaking about one of the projects, which is Great Moor. And next to him is Angela Shaw. And Angela is the director of the KZNSA uh, Gallery, which is based in Guazulu Natal in Durban. And um, directly next to her is Gabelo. And Gabelo is an independent uh, curator and researcher. And she's recently was the director of Vanza. And she joins us specifically because um, her master's research also kind of revolved very much around this question of cultural platforms and sustainability and programming um, in the South African context. And then Georgina Maxim is joining us as one of the founding directors of Village Unu based in Harare. Okay, so I'll pass first then to your premise. Thank you very, very much. Um, so the project I want to talk about is an arts initiative right opposite Great Moor Studios, for those of you who know that very, very important uh, uh, arts initiative in, in Cape Town. Uh, it's an, an old school, we'll get to the building later. I mean, we were debating the name for this and I said, you know, we can't possibly call this Great Moor, we should call it Great More or Less. Uh, so let's see how I, I, I'm able to translate this for you. Uh, but before I do that, I want to say, you know, I've been thinking very long and hard as we've passed through this initiative about, you know, a rereading of an essay that Walter Benjamin wrote in 1929 called The Last Snapshot of the European Intellectual. And reading that essay in our times strikes you with some force 
uh, because in it, Benjamin, for those of you who don't know the essay, is trying to worry at what is on the horizon as fascism begins to show up all over Europe. And he's beginning to say that basically Europe has lost sight. Its intellectuals in particular have lost sight of the idea of freedom. And he looks around and he's trying to figure out who has a concept of freedom. And ultimately he decides that the Surrealists have one. The Surrealists, the artists, those who are involved in an aesthetic project are the ones with the concept of freedom. And I've been thinking very much about that essay in our times, because in our times we too speak very glibly sometimes about this pending threat the condition of fascism that is everywhere on the horizon. In fact, from this perspective of South Africa, we now know that in the aftermath of what was once a phenomenal and widely held project of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission has basically faltered on the very concept of, of reconciliation, and I would argue in part because it did not want the aesthetic to, it did not allow the aesthetic to redefine the question of freedom. And, and so I think we're in a, in a very, very difficult space. I don't want to use the word crisis because I eschew that concept. I think we're in a difficult space, and we, like Walter Benjamin in 1929, are wanting to ask what does this concept of freedom mean for us now, especially in the midst of a rising tide of what I will call global apartheid. And so, you know, nowhere in history have we found ourselves in a more difficult situation than a situation where there's a complete imperiled relationship between subject and object. So that's the one thing I want to say about our time, that in some sense this relationship that had been developed for two centuries under the, after the Enlightenment, or with the advent of the Enlightenment, has come apart, you know, the relationship between subject and object. Secondly, we're faced with a huge crisis of the becoming technical of the human. The entire folding of the human into a technological apparatus strikes one as a condition of the new, both with potential and a set of very, very dire consequences. And so it's against that backdrop that we set about working on the puppet. And it was Ubu and the Truth Commission, really, that triggered our interest at the Center for Humanities Research at UWC on what the activating dynamic of the puppet might deliver in our rethinking um, or our thinking through the relationship between the human and technology in our age to circumvent the kind of slide into fascism and to retrieve something of a concept of freedom from within that moment. And so we called up Handspring Puppet Company um, and we said to them, we would love to have a partnership with you at a university that was disallowed an art education under apartheid. Historically, black universities, by and large, other than Fort Hare, were not allowed to, allow, to teach the creative disciplines. And so we, we set about on this mad, mad, crazy journey of trying to reinvent a humanities discourse through a relationship with a puppet. Can you just go back to... So I'll talk about this... I'll lend yourself a little, little later. Um, so with, are we not getting the puppets? So this is a festival we do in Barrydale every year. It's, uh, you know, with Handspring Puppet Company, it's with a local institution, called, uh, um, organization called Net for Prep, just for fun, which Peter Takelo set up because his argument was that rural youth in South Africa, they, much, they grow up too quickly. They don't have enough time to play. And so we inserted the puppet into this equation and tried to figure out what relations of the new were possible in thinking about this. 
So this collaboration, I want to say, has given rise to you know, a few touchstones in how we think about the project as a whole. One, we are increasingly aware that young people are being trapped in the geographies of apartheid in South Africa. And that if we do not create new conditions of mobility, both locally and globally, we are going to trap young people in a more efficient version of apartheid. And so, the, at the cornerstone of our work at the University of the Western Cape, which was set up as an apartheid university, is to think about reorganizing movement between rural and urban and across the cityscape. The second is that we've figured out that there is a need for thinking about relations between more seasoned artists and emerging artists. And so Handspring Puppet Company has done an enormous amount of work with a young group of puppeteers who now form, call themselves Ukwanda Puppetry and Design Collective. And Ukwanda were really the youngsters who worked on the war horse. And once the war horse had run its course, uh, Ukwanda set up their own theater company and you'll see the building that I'm talking about will house one of the major Ukwanda laboratories called the Laboratory of Kinetic Objects. Thirdly, uh, we wanted to develop a condition where the humanities and the arts rubbed shoulders. In other words, they brushed up against each other, created new vocabularies, but also to begin thinking about the arts as a place to develop a vocabulary on the human condition. So far too many artists, young artists, have their work moved straight from institution to gallery, to market. And we're suggesting to slow down that process and to ask whether it is possible to develop a reflection on our own predicament, but also our global predicament in this moment. And then finally, we settled on this idea of kinesthetic education. Education around objects that move, that will allow us to rethink the relation between subject and object. And so we went around the city, provincial government, national government, to ask for a building. And of course, everyone in national government, provincial government, and the city thinks you're completely mad when you knock on their doors. But someone in the midst, in the mists of that bureaucracy, decided that it might be worth testing out this project in the city. And so for the first time, the University of the Western Cape is going to acquire a building opposite the Great Moor Studios, which is this, so we can move on. This is the Barrydale Festival, which is complete ruin. When I took the vice chancellor in there, he said, absolutely not. And I said, why not? You know, and so I've persuaded him, which gives you a sense of my powers of persuasion. Um, and he's agreed to support this project, which will house three initiatives. So trying to think about a new model of arts education around the moving object that will begin to think about the human and the technological in substantially new ways. And so the one part of this is a laboratory of kinetic objects. It's a laboratory that will house the post-handspring initiative. In other words, the generation of young makers of the puppet. And these are, these are incredibly complex, complex formations because they involve an enormous amount of technical skill, but also conceptual skill in trying to build these, these giant puppets. The second is to develop a school of documentary film with Khalid Shamez and Francois Feste. Um, and in part because when one thinks about the vast collections of filmed footage on the struggles of South Africa, very, there, there's very little attention given to a documentary film language. So to develop a documentary film tradition, but also a film language through which we might rethink 
the South Africa beyond the terms and limits of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And then thirdly, to think about a school of strings. And, you know, we have a young, uh, well, he might not want me to call him young, Riza Kota, a guitarist who's worked with Derek Gripper and thought about the guitar and the kora, and he's writing a PhD on the history of the guitar in Africa to think through questions of tonality. And the thought behind this is to create a school of African strings that will allow us to string together the kinetic object in a more purposeful and deliberate rethinking of post-apartheid freedom. So I'll stop there. Okay, so we'll hand over to Georgina. There I am sitting, so relaxed thinking it's moving like that. Um, thank you for having me. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. I am from uh, Village Unu. Okay. Um, I'll tell you a little story about how this name is no longer going to start working. Because every other person, if they see village, they're expecting to see a village. And they really get quite amazed when they come to our space and we are not in anywhere close to a village. We're right in the city center and we have tried to make ourselves look very, very sophisticated in how we uh, work. So I start with that image because it's a very funny image that I've always shown everywhere where I go and speak about village and because it's the beginning of how we thought the idea would be. So the three of us standing there, uh, looking all skinny and not yet as uh, plush and rosy today, uh, from the one wearing the white t-shirt is Gareth Nyandoro, an artist, and the work in the background belongs to Gareth Nyandoro. Then comes me, the beautiful Gina, and then Mishek at the end. If you see him now, he's all quite muscular. But uh, it's, a, it's a reminder to me, to Gareth, to Mishek, that it was right for us to decide to create Village Unu. It's a beautiful reminder of the reasons that we thought it is a good idea to change the face, one, of the artist, and secondly, the face of art in our country, and then begin to spread it to wherever we are being called to attend, to speak, to represent ourselves as artists. Village Uni has been in existence since 2009, only but just a studio space, uh, where it was only myself and Mishek, and then other artists started coming in. The reason for us ending up becoming Village Uno was because we started receiving other artists, and the issue of the humanistic or the humanity started kicking in. How do we then help the other person? It's not only the other person, but the other artist, to arrive to the point that you believe that they can get to. So the name Village Unu can be broke, is definitely broken down into two things. One, the village, how it actually functions as a beautiful organic system where not only your child is your child, but it's everybody's child. And then Unu coming from the Ubuntu word, um, Bantu word meaning Ubuntu, <coughs> what makes us human. So we have tried to balance the two things, the villageness and then what makes us human. And we've, I think we're still on the right track with that. Um, next slide. We have gone through so many spaces 
uh, which is another thing about uh, uh, independent platforms. Uh, you are never able to find the space for yourself. You are always having to receive uh, gifts of spaces, if there's such a thing like that, or we are renting out spaces that kind of answer to what it is that we're doing at that particular moment. So I start with that house because it created so many other uh, new possibilities. It was a big house that was gifted to us uh, by a very good person, and uh, we were able to live there, including the artists. We used the back uh, quarters as studio spaces. There were four uh, rooms there. And there was a front cottage that we turned around into a studio space as well. There was even a swimming pool. There was a tennis court. There were two garages. It was fantastic. And we were in those spaces doing whatever we felt like doing. Independence, freedom. We were very happy in that. But you know, when you give life to a space, the owner always comes back and says, can I have my house back? So the last house that we are now in, we hope, we sincerely hope we can invest in it and uh, put our feet, uh, roots, everything into that. And we, we hope that will happen. So um, we move on to the next slide. I'm, yes, those are the studio spaces that we were using at that time. We uh, repainted them. We became about, uh, uh, if I quickly count, we had about... Uh, more than at least less than 10 artists that were coming in almost every day and working at uh, this uh, space. So I just allow the, the slides to continue. Um, this was the beginning of the, of the start of Village Unu, uh, a shop that we were renting uh, that we turned around into a sweatshop uh, because 15 artists were using just one long uh, shop and uh, working from there. It gave us the opportunity to work with different uh, people, including uh, schools, which is something that we were very happy about, that we could enter into schools through the Ministry of Education and allow ourselves to turn uh, a one classroom into a, a studio space. So we were still concentrating on these studio spaces until uh, we were approached that we are continuously making and making works. We are putting them in these lucky dips, in these corners, and what are we going to do about them? Then we were asked about how do we survive from making these artworks? How do you make it worthwhile to continue to attract artists to come to your space and to work? So the issue of exhibiting and selling started kicking in. And up until today, I still think we, we should try to become a full-time gallery <laughs> but uh, many people still think it's it's worthwhile to continue to work with those uh, different segments so village Uni falls under four uh, projects the studio space which i don't think will ever die uh, the exhibition the gallery uh, aspect uh, the residency programs um, and then the last thing being the workshops those are the four programs that we try to shape ourselves around but the um, main thing about us is uh, we, we want to change. I think we are now in the, in the middle stages of changing what the face of art in Zimbabwe is. We have been very fortunate that uh, Zimbabwean art continues to be looked at from worldwide. There are many questions over what is this school of painting? How do you describe it? Where does it come from? How has it 
manifested to become what it is. I still don't have a, 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 an answer for it, but I can provide some sort of hints towards where, why Zimbabwean painting continues to be as strong as it is. And then the second thing is that as artists, we, we are following in the footsteps of other artists that have also opened spaces, that have tried to not only become very bureaucratic, but to allow themselves to just grow and do things out of the box. Um, and the three of us being very uh, grateful and fortunate to what, what uh, life has done, we are now thinking of maybe it's a good thing to pay back, give back, help the other artists arrive to uh, a certain point in their lives. So um, uh, in the background, the images are just a uh, history of, of the things that we have done. We have also opened our space, the new space, to collaborations with many other young people who come in and, you know, and overtake and do different kind of things when it comes to, uh, they call themselves creative hubs. And we allow these creative hubs to just uh, work around us. And I, for me, I use them as learning spaces because I'm, I'm, I'm feeling like sometimes I'm not really sure of what is happening in the country, so let them take over, learn from what they are doing, learn and, and also develop what, what else can be, can be done in the art scene. Um, we are now currently, um, uh, do I need to talk about that? No, yes, I would like to talk about that, the mobile structures. It's a, it's a fun project that Mishik and I have just started doing. We think that uh, um, we're not trying to make ourselves uh, the tourist ambassadors, but we're just saying there is more to what, what an artist can experience. Uh, there is more to what they can actually soak in and, and develop from that. So these ugly buses uh, are one thing that we think we can revamp, bring life back to them, allow an artist to just drive around and, and go as far as they want and, and, and put it under the residency programs. That's what we, we begin to think about. So this is the current space. I love this space because we have put up a container. We have taken the ground floor. We have taken the garage and we have tried to give space to, continued space to artists. But it's because of this container that uh, I think we, we, we are quite enamored by it because it's, 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 it started off as a, as a mobile gallery. We wanted it to make into a mobile gallery because we, we received so many young people who, who had one complaint. Uh, it's difficult for us to find our way all the way to the city, but we would like to appreciate, learn, and know what else is out there in the, in, in the arts. Look, it's, it's world over. To go to your parents and tell them that you want to become a full-time artist, it's unheard of. They would rather have you as a doctor or some kind of a pilot. But we wanted to use ourselves as examples that it is worthwhile. It might take a long time, but it is worthwhile to hang in and to drive and drop this container in any community, allow it to be there for a month, put a uh, an artist in that uh, still container and allow them to converse with the, child the, the youngsters in that community and begin to make them believe that it is, it is something worthwhile. Again, going back to changing the face of the art and the artist. I think those are the main things that continue to shape us. So, yeah, I think from there, I stop there, and uh, yes, thank you.
Nkule, thanks for having me, and um, thanks everyone for being here. So I'm from the KwaZulu-Natal Society of Arts in Durban, and um, there are some images. Uh, we're a member-based society founded in the early 1900s, so probably one of the oldest art institutions in the country. And uh, it was founded with the intention of supporting emerging artists, which is fundamentally what our mission still is. We, um, we face incredible challenges, um, and I'm hoping we'll get into that around the, the sustainability part of the conversation. This is a... We, we're extremely lucky to reside in a building that was designed as a gallery. There was an international competition, and this design won, and we have the most beautiful gallery space. It's very flexible, it's robust, and we've been in this building since 1996. Um, so just again, that's what it looked like when the building opened. Um, what it looks like now is a little bit more like this. Um, we have lots of evening activations. Um, so this is just a sense of the building. Uh, next picture is beautiful cafe space. Um, again, we're quite lucky to be able to generate a little bit of income out of the cafe, um, but selling coffee by no means keeps the doors open. And um, this is a shot of the gallery, the main gallery, and this is a project, our Young Artist Project, which we've just revived. It had um, started in 2002, and due to sort of lack of funding, um, it stalled. There were two seasons of it in the early 2000s, and we've just revived it. We wrangled with Etiquini Municipality and finally got some funding from them and are using it to host, um, to offer 12 young artists the opportunity to mount their first solo. And this is the first iteration of it. We had a guest curator, Greer Valley. Part of the program is training for intern curators so that we're building capacity for curators in Durban. And then the four artists were selected to participate and this is them at their walkabout. So there'll be two more of these through this year. And as I said, they'll basically, we, we have funding and we provide a materials budgets for 12 young artists to mount a solo and then their work will be catalogued. And the idea is that we then help, it, it, it's basically the first step in their career and we help them get to an art fair and we help introduce them to other galleries. We see our role as an incubation gallery um, and you know, as a society we, we call ourselves a society of artists and it's very much, um, a space that we're creating physically and virtually for artists to um, to get going in their careers and then a big part of our program is to bring highly aspirational artists and curators to Durban so that KZN based artists get to see these are the standards, these are the um, these are the kind of other exciting projects, this is what the industry is about, this is how it looks and feels. We've hosted Lady Scully and guest curated with um, Gabby Bobo, um, Billy Zangewa, uh, uh, Moholi, um, hosted an incredible project with us last year. And yeah, so we really see it as a space where KZN-based artists get to see and have a sense of what the industry is like. This is our media gallery, so along with the, um, the, the, the main mezzanine and park galleries, we have this incredible media space. It's very immersive. 
This is part, that was one of the young artists' installations. And then a, a really strong education program. So attached to all of our funded exhibitions are art-making workshops hosted by the participating artists um, and a, a huge network of schools that we engage with and invite them in and provide transport and then materials for art-making sessions. Um, every holiday we have a holidays program um, again, inviting kids and people of all ages actually to to make and to be part of the building and how the building transforms. This is the street frontage mural which changes every three to six months. There's a new a new mural is made and very often by participants of workshops. Uh, a very good talks program. We, every first Thursday we have a talk um, in the late afternoon and often there are other talks sort of layered into our program based on what's in the exhibitions. And then um, a wonderful um, first Thursday program. That's a, another photo from a talk. And every first Thursday, and it's been extremely successful for us. We, we, it was a, a huge experiment and no one in Durban, well, there was a, a sort of iteration in another neighborhood in Durban, and we were like, well, let's try it. And I think we're one of the few venues in Durban that can actually provide the, the full First Thursday concept, which is free cultural stuff that happens after hours. So the gallery's open till late. Our shop, which stocks only local products, open till late. We always have live performers who are local acts. Um, if we can just go back one picture... Um, yeah, so there's always a performance element, um, so for people to have more exposure and opportunities to perform. And then, you know, a big realization for us was it's all very well being in Durban. Um, we produce the most unbelievable talent in Durban. It consistently churns out people in the creative industries who go on to do amazing things all over the country and all over the world, including Kule. And... Um, you know, we had this major insight that if we don't, if we don't tell people about um, who the creatives are and what they're doing, it's like they don't exist. So we participated in our first art fair last year. We went to Latitudes. It was an astounding success for us. Uh, one of our artists, Stendra Latuli, sold out. Um, he was basically the star of the show. And, um, yeah, it's become this... Uh, huge realization for us that we need to participate in art fairs because, as I said, those artists, they can be doing unbelievable work in Durban. One of the artists we represent is Derek Gamalo, who's in his 60s, veteran artist, incredibly prolific, prolific obsessive art making. Um, one of his pieces is eight meters wide and 2.8 meters high, spent 15 years making it. But he's almost overlooked or, or unknown. Um, the other artist we've brought to this fair is um, Callan Gresher, he, and he's a youngster. So there's this combination of emerging and an overlooked veteran. And again, our insight is if we don't bring KZN-based artists into national forums, and people simply don't know about them, and that's a big part of what our project is.
So that was Gabelo's uh, contribution to the panel as a kind of a form of an intervention. <laughs> Don't know if she wants to talk us through, but I... I mean, I can just say that I played Gom, for those who don't know, um, which is from KZN. Well, not really, but formally popularized by uh, DJs from uh, KZN. Uh, I played uh, two songs, firstly by Faga, which is a collective by Fela Gucci, uh, Desire Maria, who's also from uh, KZN, and the second song was by DJ Lag, who is very popular uh, traveling the world, also from uh, KZN. Okay, thanks, Gabriel. So I think the intervention kind of um, does function within the panel in the sense that it's a moment of holding space. In this case, we're holding space for the two performance artists that, that have been introduced to some of us in the audience. And um, as a kind of to begin the conversation, I wanted to just say that what rang out for me through the presentations is really about this whole incubation um, of all the platforms that, oh, yeah, that work um, in the way that even though uh, Pramesh, yours is within the institution, uh, an academic context, pedagogic, and uh, Pamela is more right in the community, and yours is also quite embedded within, if not, even if it's not a village in the normal way one would conceive, it's in, the, in a community which is what is really um, the function of, of what a village is. Uh, but it's all about holding space and creating spaces for people at the same level. And this kind of takes away a little bit of this hierarchical relationship, or at least tries to, far more than um, uh, what museums are able to do from, from their spaces uh, that do not maybe intersect very much with the community, even though they do try. Um, yeah, so... Our key thing, again, is always around sustainability. And it was also quite interesting to hear about the different models. So going straight up into the entrepreneurial and commercial spaces, and of course, the having support from an institutional framework, and then in, in, in Village UNU, um, being able to go out with the artists and, and have to come up with that question of like, how do you take them into the international platforms? And how do you make the platform also um, sustainable? So I think if there's any additional comments around that um, from our panel, because that is what we're talking about, so, and, and also its impact on sort of the programming, um, we know that we do function in a kind of uh, environment where there's always a lack of funds, but I think the, the, the possibility that platforms offer is that you're able to make very responsive um, moves to the, the conditions of what, what's going on within your art community that you're dealing with, but also in, t in terms of the functions of the spaces. Um, but I think, yeah, let's speak about that a little bit. is going to like happen because you're an MPO and that's that's just not happening um, there's a complete crisis in public funding there's a, a Facebook group called I'm for the arts that started in, um, in January and has 12,000 members 
has just exploded and it's the the genesis of the group was somebody who was messed around with public funding and lost their home an artist performing artist and um and so this forum is is, is is happening in which people are coming forward and just speaking about how they feel um, public funding is, is failing them. And there, there's um, talk around dereliction of duties, which is quite a strong, it's a, char it's a very serious charge if it actually becomes legal. Um, so I think that that is also fascinating that organically there's a, the, the, it's, it's not just about sitting around in Durban going, oh, um, gosh, it's really hard, we can't access funding. It's a national problem. And it's global good practice for the arts to be funded by the state. And somehow we made you feel a little bit embarrassed about that, like we're the, you know, like we're the poor cousins or, or we're some sort of charity that needs support. But based on what we do, um, it's very difficult to, um, again, this perception that an MPO is not for profit. In our, in our language, whenever there's leftover money, it's called surplus and it goes straight back into our programming. It's not as if it's sitting in an investment somewhere or it's um, you know, sort of private wealth. And um, we need to be extremely flexible and entrepreneurial. We need to come at things with a strong commercial um, approach. And um, you mentioned hierarchies, and what I've found quite interested participating in this fair is that the MPO um, organizations are placed on the cultural platform which is a sort of other space, um, and it feels a bit strange. It feels strange that there's a differentiation. And I'm saying this with the utmost respect to the fair because it's been incredible to be here. And um, we believe strongly that it's good for our artists, but we, uh, I, I keep looking around and going, gosh, you know, the, the really good lighting, it ends there, and we're here, and we're on this dim alley at the back. And I, <laughs> and I wonder why, I went, and I get, I'm sure they're, they're very valid reasons, but I would like to, in the, with the most respect, challenge that and say, well, you know, we're bringing artists whose work is just as collectible, just as valuable, just as exciting. And um, there's this automatic, via the urban planning of the space, there's this automatic, like, oh no, they, you can't take them as seriously as them. So, um, yeah. I, I wonder if, if, if independent practices are meant to be forever perpetuated. Mm. And I, I think maybe that's where this this conundrum always comes up and never ends, is that we are always wanting to keep things forever spinning that maybe shouldn't always spin. Mm -hmm. And so, and my, my question to my fellow panelists is, having worked at a commercial gallery, when things start being commercial, it changes how you focus. And so, it's good to, to, to expose artists to different markets, but I wonder if then the intention of the space doesn't change with that, because now you start responding to what markets want and no longer what the artist wants, right? So you have a different view. No. 
<laughs> um, I think it's the last part where you say you start responding to what the market wants and you begin to shape whatever it is that you need to do because of the market. I don't think so. Maybe uh, in some aspects of what we're doing as village and we've tried to respond to that. Uh, firstly, you come to, a, to an art fair. I think those that have seen our booth, somebody came in yesterday and, they, and he asked us, what is wrong with us? How can you bring canvases and just staple gun them? Which is not even close to anything uh, commercially uh, defined. Look, I wanted to, uh, coming from your uh, statement uh, about how do we try to manage ourselves, I tr we, Mishek and I have tried to run away from the issues of funding. There was a time when we thought that this makes sense to be funded and we got ourselves into a huge bureaucratic muddle to get ourselves registered, to get the paperwork done because there was the promise of funding. And then we realized that it's not worthwhile to actually seek out this funding because you are now put in a box and in that box you're supposed to answer the questions of that funding, you're supposed to satisfy the funding. Look, we are not trying to make ourselves the pompous artists who have made it, who are selling in our own way. But we're just trying to show that there is something different out there. There is something that is worthwhile looking at and spending time in the process mm -hmm. and being part of that process. So I would like to uh, speak about uh, a project, or not a project, but it's a program that has been going on since 2015, and I'm very proud of that which we've dubbed Artist Residency Studio Award. In here, in the audience, is someone who has been a very good uh, uh, part of the process, mm. where they identify an artist, uh, they spend over six months wondering what that artist is doing, uh, looking over their shoulder, and making sure the artist is in the studio. Mm. So in that process, I've noticed that it's not ab about the funder giving money and only waiting for an artwork at the end of the six months. No. It's about the funder looking over, understanding what it is that the artist is, is looking for. What do they want to become after the six months, or even after two years, or five years, or any amount of time? What is it that they want to achieve from that? And then there's this part that I then notice with these young artists that are under this program, that the money doesn't only go towards the, the materials. But there's this sense of confidence that comes with that uh, funding. It's, it's simple things like being able to afford to buy myself a pair of shoes. Mm -hmm. That confidence, you cannot, you cannot just give it to anyone just like that. But the fact that they know that there's somebody out there who is promising that at the end of the month or the beginning of the month, they are sending some sort of little amount I can confidently walk in. I don't have to borrow from anyone. This is, remember, our point is about changing the face of art yeah. and the artist. We are coming out of a background where you cannot even present yourself as an artist. Mm. You, have to, you have to answer stupid questions like, so can you draw? That's a stupid question. <coughs> you have to answer to that to prove to them that I am worth it. And then when they look at you the way you're dressed, they say, oh, it makes sense, yeah, the way you're dressed because you're an artist. There are so many things that people don't comprehend, that art education is not there. So if we can answer such, such cases and not only look at Cabello's question about, yeah. you then begin to follow what the commercial aspect is looking for, then we are in the right track. 
Yes, we need the money at the end of the day by sales, mm -hmm. but first of all, let us address the things that have been a problem in our the societal questions that have not been resolved. And it becomes about sustaining people and sustaining careers and sustaining... The humanistic and, element. Exactly, and not the, cap, the capital focus, which no. is, is what I was saying, is that we, we know that we have a catalogue of complaints around yeah. finances, but it really is also important to talk about the other ways that we sustain the platforms that we create, it's, however else, you know, to yeah. maintain the programs that we run, because yeah. it's not just about the funding. Um, or, or the economic aspect of it. And also just to respond to Gabriel's provocations, that that was also the provocation that came from the previous panel um, with Koyo saying that certainly no art uh, institution is sustainable. So we can say, okay, cultural platforms are the, are the least perhaps sustainable because they are small or they're unknown, but museums and other much bigger, high-profile institutions face similar kinds of problems. And um, so, Premier. Yeah, you know, just very briefly, I mean, I'm sympathetic to a lot of what has been said. I suppose uh, maybe just to reframe it for my own purposes. Um, I, I do think that, you know, the worry for me is the rush to ground on the kind of question of sustainability that translates merely as development mm. or, you know, an NGOization of the kind of arts pre uh, uh, project. Mm -hmm. And I, I worry about the way in which we've been trapped by a global discourse in a, in a very confined space. I would say that you know, we need a massive shift in orientation and perspective, and perhaps the object that I was trying to put forward, that the arts are responsible for rethinking the project and question of freedom. Mm. To keep that on, at, the, at the center of our, of our projects, to make sure that we are responsible for renewing and reorienting a discourse. That, will, you know, that is not simply about what service the arts delivers or you know, how much development it can offer communities. But those responsibilities are everyone's responsibilities, including states that are increasingly neglecting those responsibilities across the world. But what I would want to argue against the kind of you know, tendency to slide into a, a developmental discourse or a welfareism, that what we ought to be doing is sharpening a kind of critique of the present and putting in place a refigured globally kind of challenging discourse on freedom as an inter a global right wing increasingly takes hold of this term and mobilizes it against the very artistic and aesthetic practices that have, ha that have given us something to live by. And I'm thinking here about someone like David Holwane. I mean, you know, a, year, a month before he died when they opened this exhibition at the National Gallery, I remember chatting to him and you know, he said this most incredible thing. He said, you know, I've never wanted recognition but I'm terrified about being erased. And I just like, how is someone like Holwane who has set up like the traditions by which we come to understand what art making is, facing that a month before he, you know, the end of his life? And I, I think you know, there's something to be drawn out of that. So there's a massive need for us to raise the expectations of what the art world responds to. And if we slide into this thing where we're going to simply see the market as the, the end point of a certain critique, I think we forego a massive possibility of what the arts might do for us. And well, that will open to you guys if you have any questions. Nothing. <laughs> Annette. Just one. Did we talk about art and philanthropy at the beginning? And there were two, there were two dynamics that came out of it. 
And the world was seeing the entire um, philanthropy was looking at the art market and how investment and development, and once the investment comes in there, then you can actually start looking after and developing the arts. But then a very interesting, and I sort of looked at it and I could see Investec does look like, you know, speaks like that, and it's also got a lot to do with an English model. And I've experienced it where I've been working on the ground where people come in with tourism consortiums and they're saying, no, 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 the arts have to wait until we get our tourism hotel or we get our waterfront and things. No, 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 there won't be any money available. Or if the universities have decided they're going to transform their humanities department. No, 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 the arts must actually follow suit. Now, interesting enough, it was the African Development Fund, what is it called? It was a French man, who, the African. He said something really interesting. He just said, look, the way that his development trust works is in actual fact, they say to artists, well, the artists say, we have a problem. It's about human trafficking. What can we do about it? And what happens is, is that the theater people come in, people from universities, people from all, and they go about, and they're even breaking down barriers. And they're talking about, they're working on a solution. And I just thought it was really very important to look at the way that you're talking about platforms. I do think there should be flexibility, but I do think also it's system versus people. And I don't know about how much of it is about you know, the rights and freedom. It's more about what makes us African and contemporary and how does that platform work towards actually making it a, you know, a better continent. Thank you, Annette. Anybody want to respond to that? But I also just think, just to add to that, that it's, it's important to also consider we all might have different entry points and each person is responding to a specific context in a specific situation and we, you know, the range of responses, there's no wrong response. Yeah. I'll say something very briefly to uh, Annette. I mean, I'm arguing that, in fact, there was a tradition of freedom that was invented on this continent you know, and a concept of freedom that was never allowed to come into its own. If Europe didn't go to war in 1915, 1914, that concept would have flourished as another way of being in the world. And I'm saying there are great scholars, intellectuals like Charlotte Matreke, I mean, you comb this continent, you know. You look at what shifted Du Bois' understanding of the world, Dozama April's work. It was Matreke's great intellectual introduction of, you know, choir, interventions from the Eastern Cape and an aesthetic from the Eastern Cape that shifted the, 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 the world's possibilities. So I'm saying, you know, we, we are being absolutely, utterly lazy in not picking up on what it is we are meant to be advancing as a set of possibilities in the world. And I do think there were traditions of freedom on this continent that this world would have been much better off with than without. There are no further questions, are there? Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so again, thank you so much for a fascinating panel. Um, I guess my question is on KNZSA, right? Just thinking about the, it institutionally from an evolutionary perspective, because technically, I guess it's been around for 120 years, if, if the math is right. Um, and so I'm just curious, 
you know, 1996, you have this new space, which is clearly very sort of futuristic in how it's investing in the next generation of, of transcending some of the barriers around art and access and, and institutionalization. But I'm just wondering, how self-conscious was the process? Like, was there an actual break in terms of the history of the organization and then a commitment to a future that looked different? Or was it sort of consistent with the ethos from its founding? That's sort of one question. And then I think the second question is um, coming back to, I guess, the points around funding. Because if it's been in existence for so long, presumably there's kind of legacies that have been built. So um, how are you thinking about the future of funding where the legacies eventually fade? It was founded as a colonial exclusive club in 1902, um, similar to Royal Botanic Society, National Geographic Society, all of those kinds of societies that the British um, uh, established. And uh, it, it was founded at the same time and by the same people who started the Durban, who opened the Durban Art Gallery, which is now our municipal city gallery as the um, forum for um, emerging artists, as I said. So it's so interesting that that's still our mandate. To answer your question about did, did that, did, was there a conscious um, kind of introspection around, wow, okay, colonial, a colonial society is fundamentally exclusive, um, and how do we change that? The answer is yes. So in 2012, there was a new ethos was developed and it was called um, activation, um, incubation, incubation, activation, and God, I'm gonna, I'm gonna totally like fluff this. Um, but it, it, it essentially spoke to how the space becomes more activated, more inclusive, how it, in, oh, and transformation. We, we, yeah, that's the big one. Um, so it's activation, incubation, and transformation. So how we, through activation and incubation, literally transform the member base and the committee base because it's, it has a volunteer board and it's pretty much run by a, by a committee. Um, and that was, that, that was really, um, really taken on from 2012 and I'm, I'm glad to say that since then we've had um, black presidents, mostly black board, um, you know we now want to, we want to move away from, from this overt um, focus on transformation. Um, it's very much inherent in, what, in, in our ethos um, but, but now we've very focused on what does it feel like to enter the space, whether you're entering it um, via the website or the building or the stand, um, and does it feel inclusive? Because that's fundamental. We needed to break away from it being an exclusive um, or having ex roots around exclusivity. And um, yeah, it's something that we, we constantly look at and are constantly um, fine-tuning and, and take very seriously. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, so, so our exhibition subcommittee, the selections on what projects come through and what exhibitions come through is very much with through that lens. Um, and then your second question was about funding. So um, historically, it had enjoyed 
um, patronage of, I, I guess, mostly white um, funders, um, a, a strong um, support from the Jewish community, and then a British funder who um, had a charity, um, and there was a trust set up where we, where the organisation prior to me being there and prior to '96, basically managed a, a London-based charities um, uh, endowments and 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 got some kind of funding out of that. Um, then, in, you know, sort of post '96, there's there's been some NLC funding. Um, and some uh, DAC funding, but it's very, um, it's, it, it's definitely died, it's died off, um, despite us being, uh, having impeccable statutory requirements for funding, uh, you know, tax clearance, everything, j jumping through all the hoops they require for funding. Um, again, it's just incredibly elusive and incredibly, um, a, 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 yeah, it's an, it's an utter mystery how to access public funding. We've been in a, in a, in a dispute with Itikuni Municipality for six years. We know that we were get, uh, allocated grant and aid, which we did not receive for the first three-year cycle at all, and we're now in the second cycle in which we actually have the document showing the money allocated to us, and they've agreed to give us one of those years, which we're using to host this young artist project. So wherever we have funding, it goes straight back into experimental practice, into socially relevant work, into all the things around freedom, around what are, what are the, what are we, what are artists, you know, what kind of space and what kind of funding and support do artists need to develop their bodies of work and their practices. Um, I have a, it's not a question, but it's something that the conversations you guys have been having has made me think about, and it's, it's a question of to what extent are we ready to look at what sustainable, and by sustainable I'm not talking about is going to be here forever, but what sustainable artistic practices in South Africa are happening. Are we going to wait for Europe, which is here on the ground doing the research to tell us about these things so that we can follow suit? Or are we going to actually start doing the work? Because what I have kind of picked up is there is a problem with the fact that we are still using a particular model that is not interested in what South African models are there, but is interested in maintaining a tradition that's always been there. This is not a bad thing in itself, but it's a question of if we expand so much energy into these, how are we going to you know, get to know these other ones? We had a gom song, which for me was very interesting because that's another form that sustains itself. I'm interested in how the painting tradition sustained itself because I don't think, I mean, I don't know the Zimbabwean scene at all, but I'm interested in whether painting is sustainable or rather sustains itself because of something intrinsically local rather than something global. You know, and then Primesh, what you've identified about the art is quite interesting, but at the same time, you identify it, but then go back into a, 
into an institutional mode. So for me, I think there's a lot of work to be done in, 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 in getting to a point where we can understand where these impulses come from. You know, if you talk about Matreke, um, you know, there's something about doing that history of the choir tradition to actually realize that it, it's a British, it could be a British model, but it operated completely outside of that model. So I think for me that would be the question, and yeah, I'll leave it there. Yeah, that's a great question that's going to require many, many drinks. Uh, to, to answer. So I, I'm going to just pick up on one or two things. Look, I do think I'm, I'm talking here about the, you know, what Paul Gilroy gave us as the Black Atlantic as one way to enter this discussion. I don't think that South Africans, they've been, uh, there's been a bit of a delay in kind of getting to this point. I don't think it's insurmountable. But I am wondering about what comes after the bag factory, after Holwani's traditions, after what that legacy meant for us as, as, as people invested in the aesthetic. On the question of institution, I think, look, I mean, I inhabit an institution and I've been arguing that we must build institutions. I don't know why after the grueling punishment I received from it. Uh, but the question here is about aesthetic education. And I'm wondering whether, you know, we ought to be attending to the question of what aesthetic education. And I go back to, you know, what apartheid for me fundamentally amounted to was a blunting of the emotions, was a decimation of the sensorium, of the human sensorium. And if we don't get back into a space of an aesthetic education, we fundamentally falter on what we offered, not only this continent, but the world as a post-apartheid promise. So across this continent, I'm always intrigued by how much energy is being constituted in these projects. I mean, there's these studies that we did through Kaleidoscopia and others in Mozambique, of like real, real powerful arts projects. And yet, when I look here, where the question of you know, reconciliation is basically becoming a stuck record, you know. We're not even beginning to open up ourselves to what this continent has, has given us as a set of possibilities to think with. So I, I really don't think it's trying to limit it to institution, but to ask what can we learn from what has preceded us, but more importantly, you know, how do we reconstitute the field of aesthetic education that would, you know, lead to a kind of question of a more livable life. Okay, um, before I answer that question, I'm going to challenge or I'm going to ask Heaton. No, I'm, I'm not going to ask him a question, but I'm going to introduce Heaton Bucket. Uh, some of you know him. He was an, um, a curator at the National Gallery. I would like for you to respond to the question about Zimbabwean painting through 696, the exhibition that you did together with Kambudzi, Patrick, and Mishek, and the reasons why they, the three, and any other people that come, any other artists that come after that, remain with the tradition of painting. Where is this coming from? Then I can add one on top. Sorry, but yeah. <laughs> Uh, I, don't, I, I mean, I think it's, it goes back to what Pramesh is saying, is that it's a, I don't think it's an answer that I can give in, like, in a sentence, but there's a practice and there's a... <laughs> Gina, man. <laughs> well, <laughs> but it's like, I don't know, it, 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 if you use the word tradition, yes. there's a practice. There's a practice and that practice is... Uh, people are playing with it and experimenting with it and it continues to grow because there's a legacy of it. 
Sorry. <laughs> I'm completely on the spot. <laughs> okay, so we can try to help Sorry. each other, then we can okay. jog uh, each other's memory. My, my theory, which I don't think could be totally correct, um, is um, uh, firstly the fact that the artists that were then coming out who were becoming painters were becoming very rebellious against uh, the stone sculpture. They were thinking that uh, it's not only stone sculpture that can define what Zimbabwean art is and began to follow the steps of painting. We can start off by talking about uh, Thomas Mukarobwa. Um, unfortunately, more research about Thomas Mukarobwa is a bit saddening because he was part of the Frank McEwen uh, time where he as a worker at the National Gallery was being trained to become a painter. But I want to bring it to the point that it, he even had something in him that was able to churn out this painterly, Zimbabwean painterly theory that is coming out today. Look, we, we can walk around in the, in the art fair right now and you will, you will stop dead in front of one particular painting and you will ask the questions, who is this? And it will surely be a Zimbabwean painter. It will surely be that. It will surely be that. I'm really, I'm really proud of what we have, what the Zimbabwean painters have done. They've, they, I, I think I'm going to be in Hitton's shoes where it's difficult to actually come to a real pinpoint why the Zimbabwean painting movement has continued and is flourishing in the manner that it is. We are not natural painters. We are naturally stone sculptors, right? No? Yes. Yes, and I just want to add something that you brought up. I think it's also because it's been, it's being allowed to flourish with le with very little attention, mm -hmm. and that's what's really interesting is that there's no, there doesn't seem to be, there's no school or, or or kind of condition on it, and so it's allowed to experiment and play with itself, which is really nice actually. Yeah, we had beautiful years with Robert Mugabe, and he was the best subject to paint and and get from. So yeah. The experiment, the process, the continued wanting to do this. We have yeah. colorful people. Many of these aspects well, fall into it. But there's no real answer for that, unfortunately. Yeah. I think that's the little attention is uh, the key. Because um, when I was thinking about uh, this topic, GOM for me has been in existence far longer than what we know of it. And it will continue to be in existence outside of our awareness of it. And so that it's operating globally for the few doesn't mean that it's not operating locally for the many. And they are now like this Amapiano, which again is a movement that was happening before our awareness of it publicly. So I think that's, and that was for me the, the the reason I played it was, are we trying to have a popular culture that is forever popular? Or can we have moments where things just like kind of go back into the background, continue doing what they were doing anyways? And then there's moments of like, you know, it's being seen, it's being praised and blah, blah, blah. But that's not why you do the thing you do. Thank you. Thank you, Gabelo. And uh, on that note, we'll bring the conversation to a close. And uh, thank you for being with us. And uh, we are around for further conversations. Just uh, thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
Thank you to the panelists and to the Investec Cape Town Art Fair for letting us publish this talk on Unframed. Don't forget to follow Unframed on Instagram and Facebook and subscribe on Apple Music or wherever you get your podcasts.